Our Father and our God, we thank you for the privilege that we have together on this Sunday evening to be able to end the Lord's Day, gather together as your people to worship you in truth and spirit. We pray that you would bless our time together as we open up your word and study that which you have for us. We thank you, Father, for such a great Savior, a Savior who was the God-man who showed us his humanity here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we pray that we would learn from his actions how we are to pray, how we are to seek you, how we are to seek to be in the center of your will in all that we do and say. We pray, Father, for the salvation of sinners. We thank you, Father, that as the gospel is proclaimed, that your spirit is able to work in the lives of those who are unconverted, to open their eyes to the truth, to unstop their ears, to hear the truth. And we pray, Father, that that even might happen not only here in this place, but throughout the world as the gospel is proclaimed this evening so that many might come into your kingdom. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with us again to Mark chapter 14. We will again look at the passage that we looked at a few weeks ago. Mark chapter 14, and we will begin with verse 32 and read through verse 42. Mark 14, beginning with verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and he found them asleep and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Is it enough? The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up. Let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. Last time we were together looking at this particular passage, we looked at why Jesus went through this experience at Gethsemane as he contemplated what would begin to happen later on that evening and the next day. We know that no person has ever faced what Jesus faced. No person will ever face what Jesus had to face. His struggles revealed to us a number of things as we looked at those verses, and we saw that it revealed that He was the God-man, that He was the Lamb of God, totally innocent, the second Adam, and that He would be forsaken. This event begins the most 
extraordinary event ever to take place in the history of mankind, and we know that it will climax with the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And here in the garden was the Son of God on His face, on His knees, pleading with His heavenly Father, casting Himself before His heavenly Father in a manner that reveals to us His agony. Most of us at some time or another have fallen on our face before God and cried out in agony. But no one has ever even come close to experiencing what Christ's experiencing. And there's so much that we can learn from this particular event there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Donald McLeod, a preacher in Scotland, still alive, matter of fact, wrote these words which are very adequate for us to hear tonight. Why is this worth reflecting on? Surely for one thing, the very fact itself that he prayed, because prayer is impotence grasping at omnipotence. Here is Christ praying. In Him there is the reality of impotence reaching out toward omnipotence. His praying is the greatest single indicator of His dependentness, of His own independent human sense that with His limited created resources, He simply couldn't handle the situation that was emerging before Him. I think we must drive it, ram it home to the depths of our own conscience that dependentness is not a sign of sinfulness. It is in fact a sign of creatureness. It is a sign of humanness. It's a reminder to us that if Jesus felt that he could not bear his load and climb the mountain or cross the river or overcome the temptation except in the strong crying and tears which he offered to God, then how before God can we hope to go through life day by day and say to God, Father, it's okay, we can handle it. We have come before God in this crushing sense of our own sheer weakness. Because when Christ is praying, He is praying in the most eloquent fashion possible. There is no way that in my naked and unaided humanness, I can carry this load, nor finish this work, nor bear this burden, nor emerge from this trial. That is why we have a praying Christ. He is the incarnation of the living power of God. He is the enfleshment of all ability of God's grace, and yet He is praying. Wonderful words by McLeod. To understand the humanness of Christ and how that humanness of Christ should be an example for us as Christians to follow His example, as Peter tells us in his epistle as well, that we are to walk in His steps. Our Lord's distress reveals His human weaknesses. It says, He began to be troubled and deeply distressed, and He even told His disciples, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. 
just reading those words should cause us to be able to, in some measure, grip the agony that he was going through and cause us to realize that he was overwhelmed. He separated himself, as it tells us there in the passage, from his disciples. Scholars say he probably went 40 to 50 feet away from them, from that side of the room, possibly over to this side of the room. And he began to pray after he had told his disciples, and next week we'll look at that, after he told his disciples to watch and to pray. Now, again, we'll look at next week, but it's been a long night for them. Remember, we started all the way back in the upper room. And remember, he taught them literally for hours there in the upper room, and they instituted the Lord's Supper. Now they've gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's been a long night for them. We don't know exactly what time it was, but I suppose it's getting close to midnight. So we can relate to their leeriness. But again, that's next week's sermon. But we see that he separates himself from them and he goes over and he begins to pray. And they actually become spectators of his praying. But yet we see that they do fall asleep in their time of need. And Jesus is so sorrowful that the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus began to sweat as it were, drops of blood. And it was a cold evening. How do we know it was cold evening? Because later we see that the guards were gathered around a campfire. So you have a fire because it's cool. So we know that it's a cool evening. And on that cool evening, we see that Jesus is literally sweating drops of blood in His anguish. Now notice Jesus prays, Take this cup from me. Not any cup but this unique cup given to him by the hand of his heavenly Father who knew his Son and there was perfect love between them. God loved him perfectly, the Father did, and he loved the Father perfectly. But this cup grieved Christ. That's the key for us to be able to understand Gethsemane. For this cup of God is a reference to divine judgment, the wrath of God against man's sin. That's what was in the cup. There was the righteous condemnation and damnation in the cup toward the sins of man. The Old Testament speaks often of that. Let me mention a few of those verses. I cannot mention all of them because we don't have the time. Psalms 75, 8. In the hands of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wickedness of the earth drink it down to its very dreads. Jeremiah 25, 15. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Isaiah 51, 17, Arouse yourself, arouse yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who dr have drunk at the hands of the Lord the cup of wrath, who have drunk the dreads, the bowls of staggering. Revelations 14, 9 and 10. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, 
If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. So we see that each of these verses reveal those who are hopelessly under the wrath of God. The staggering as God's righteousness crushes them. God's wrath in His judgment in action rending to everyone His due justice. The wages of sin is what? Death. And the wages of sin, as far as death is concerned, is the wrath of God upon them. So as Jesus Christ looked into that cup, it was not just the wrath toward David's sin or Paul's sin or the sins of Noah, Abraham, Solomon, and Peter that he saw. But my sin and your sin was in that cup. That is what the hand of the Father put into the hand of the Holy Lamb of God to drink. God showed His mercy to sinners. As Pastor Tiago spoke of this morning, mercy is what? Mercy is not receiving what we are due. Mercy is giving us just the opposite. We deserve what? Death. We all have sinned. No one in this room has not sinned. We've all sinned. We've sinned many times. So what we deserve is death. But God does not give us what we deserve. God shows us mercy and shows us grace. So we see that God showed His mercy to sinners in constraining His Son to drink the cup so that we might not drink it so that we might be set free, so that we might be saved. And we see that Jesus willingly does so. Now with that as our introduction, I want us to look more closely at this prayer so that we might understand it better, so that we might be able to feed upon it as well as teach others what Jesus is struggling with because there's many that do not understand this passage. They wrongly interpret this passage and they come away from it with heresy and not truth. So it's important that we understand it so that we might teach others the truth of this passage. But first we see that He prays to His Father there in verse 36, Abba, Father. These are very intimate Terms. I mean, there's no anger, there's no estrangement between the Father and the Son. Nothing here shows that Jesus is offended by the Father's demand of Him doing such a thing. There's only love and graciousness between the Father and the Son. For desire of the Son and the desire of the Father are one. Now, there's no distrust, there's no tension in the garden between the Father and Son, and whatever Jesus prays and asks for, He does by faith in God. For He completely trusts His Father. So He prays adoring the omnipotence of God. And He affirms that omnipotence in this prayer. 
he didn't begin to play to his father, all things are possible, but we see that he first began by saying, Abba, Father, to him. Recognizing who he is before he says, all things are possible for you. So he prays as he taught his disciples to pray. Remember when his disciples asked, teach us to pray, and he gave them the model prayer. He told them to knock and it would be open and to seek and to find. But the Father doesn't open the door here. He doesn't give him another cup. He was searching for any other way in an agreement with divinely appointed mission on which he had set out 33 years earlier when he waved by to the Father and left heaven's glory and came to dwell here on this earth. He knew what his task was. Was there any other way that agreed with the righteousness of a sin-hating God for all things given to Him would be redeemed and pardoned? Well, the answer was no. Golgotha was the only way. And understanding this was never, an easy, uh, never a question of whether Jesus would obey or would not obey. He always said, here I am, not demanding service, but de serving and giving his life as a ransom for many. Now again, I say that there's those who have taken this passage and made some statements that are wrong. Arrow. Rick Warren in his book, Purpose Driven Church, says, Jesus stood at a fork in the road. Would he fulfill his purpose? Would he fulfill his purpose? How can anybody ask such a question? Would Jesus fulfill his purpose? Of course Jesus would fulfill his purpose. They asked, he asked the question, would he fulfill his purpose? Would he bring glory to God? Or would he shrink back and live a comfortable self-centered life? How in the world can you say such a thing about Christ? How in the world can you say such a thing about Jesus? Would Jesus live a self-centered life? No, Jesus was sinless. He would never live such a self-centered life. And then he says, you face the same choice. Will you live for your own goals or comfortable or pleasure? Or will you live the rest of your life for the glory of God, knowing that he has promised eternal reward? Now, the second phrase is true. We can say that about us, but we cannot say that about Jesus. Because Jesus always came with one purpose to fulfill, and He was going to fulfill that purpose, even though it was difficult. As John Calvin says, Christ, amidst fear and sadness, was weak without any taint of sin. In other words, He's demonstrating to us His human side. He was weak, humanly speaking. But being weak doesn't mean that He was sinful. He was fearful, and there's no doubt why he was fearful. Now we see that he longed for a different will of his father, his fa than his father's will at this point. Not my will, but thy will. So he was willing to submit to his father's will, even though there was something that he said, is there another way? Is there another way to save 
the people that you have given me apart from going to the cross? That's what he's asking. He's not neglecting his desire to save his people. He's saying, is there another way to save them? In other words, as he faced the horrors of the cross, the horrors of what was about to begin to happen, there is that fear as any human being would have. Again, Donald McLeod says, part of what we are seeing in this, the fact that it was not God's will to hear the Lord's request, the Father said, no, there is no other cup for you. He didn't take the cup away. And part of what I got is the marvelous paradox of the Messiah praying for what God did not intend to give. Indeed, pleading earnestly for what God couldn't take from him, sometimes we get into a terrible trouble in our own soul because God doesn't listen to our prayers. You remember, Paul beseeched the Lord three times to take away the thorn in his flesh. Are we going to say, what an unspiritual man, Paul besets the Lord three times to take it away, but he didn't take it away. How could he be such an unspiritual man? There's no hint of that. We have the man, Jesus Christ, expressing his creatureliness, pleading his own shrinking and longing to escape from what he fears may be God's will, but which he hopes against hope may not be the will of God. In that passion, kneeling down, lying on the ground, sweating drops of blood, praying with earnesty and impotent and committed Long to God's will for him may be different from what he dreads and from what he has reason to believe it is going to be. You say, ha, the moment we know something to be God's will is easy. It might be easy for a few, but the whole glory of Gethsemane is that God's will was not easy. It wasn't easy for the Lord himself, even for him, any more than the thorn in the flesh of Paul. And how true that is. It was not an easy task for our Lord. And obeying God's will is not easy for us. We know that. We must realize that God's will is often very painful. There are many times in life when providence is indeed God's will and it hurts really hurts, downright painful. Sinclair Ferguson said, Everything in Jesus longed to escape this terrible experience, seen in its own light, yet everything in Jesus also longed to be obedient to the Father. And in that light he bowed before Him, praying, Not my will, but Your will be done, Father. So we know that life can be difficult, it can be painful, it can be hard, and we often recall against such frowning providence that comes our way. We must be slow to criticize those who are hurting, those who are going through difficult times, those who are struggling, and they may even be murmuring, saying, this is hard. This is difficult. 
Because life can be very hard. And God's will sometimes is so hard that we literally fall on our face as Christ did and cry out in pain. It was hard for Jesus. And I'm not surprised when those going through such periods of time in their own life plead with God to change things. Lord, is there another way? Lord, is there another cup? Make things different. Jesus in His agony said, Father, is there any possible different cup? I want a different cup so badly. Luther called our Lord the pioneer of our faith. And we should take great comfort in this. Again, He's given us an example. He's given us an example in how to struggle in those difficult times, those painful times, that there's nothing wrong with asking God for a different cup. Knowing that he didn't find it easy to drink the cup and that he doesn't find it automatic comfort, knowing that it's God's will. In other words, he doesn't take it in stride. As some people would tell you, well, well, pull up your bootstraps and take it in stride. That's not how Jesus does this. Ferguson also says, this cup was something he had spoken about before. It had been employed by the Old Testament prophets as a symbol of pouring out the judgment of God. Drinking it meant shame upon men and alienation from God. And Jesus knew that. And in His perfect humanity shrank from it. Had He not done so, we could never have believed Him to be fully as well as human, truly human. Yet his father's will was that he should drink it, and to this purpose our Lord submitted. So again, as Ferguson said, it reveals to us the humanity of Christ, that he was like us, though without sin. We can relate to him, and he relates to us. So as Jesus earnestly prayed, He says to the Father, Not my will, but thine be done. And this reveals to us something of the two wills. These were not exactly unplanned. Jesus' desire was not exactly what was in the cup. Yet this was a spirit of submission. He didn't pretend that this is what he wanted all along, but there was this acknowledgement of struggling, this acknowledgement of pain, of suffering. We see a heartbreaking confession. He says to a father, Father, it hurts. I'm in agony. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I'm not pretending that this is what I want. I'm not going to say this is how I'd love things to be if I could arrange it differently. But your will be done, not my will. That is what we can say that he's saying to us here. Have you ever experienced something similar to that? As you struggle with some difficulty that is very painful, the pain isn't subsiding at all. Someone may say, well, you can't be right with God then. You know, there's people that actually say that. 
Here you are struggling. The pain is surrounding you. And you're crying out to God and somebody puts their two cents in and says, well, you just must not be right with God. Or if that was God's will for your life, that things would be smooth. You've heard that. You know, you've heard people say, well, you come to Christ, everything's just rosy, the road's just smooth. That's not true. All you have to do is go and look at the Gospels. All you have to do is read the epistles. When you come to Christ, that's when things really get tough. That's when things really get difficult. But yet you have Christ to be able to go through those difficult times. So therefore, when people say things like that, we must reject such thinking. For Christ did not enjoy Calvary. It was painful, but He was submissive to His Father's will. Another statement from Sinclair Ferguson. He prayed that the cup the Father was giving him might be taken away. This incidentally teaches us that it is not necessarily wrong to ask for something which God does not intend to give us. So long as our hearts are prepared to submit to His will, whatever this is. Now, of course, he's not saying that we're to uh, desire something that's sinful. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's nothing wrong desiring something that we don't really know what God's will is in that particular situation. But we must always be willing to submit to whatever God's will is that he presses upon us. R.C. Sproul says, Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane manifests his true human nature. According to His divine nature, the Son of God knew that the cross was the only way to save His people. But according to His human nature, He asked if there could be another way. If our salvation could be purchased without such a high cost. But in this, Jesus did not sin. For he was committed to following God's revealed will, even if it would cost him his very life. Now when we see Jesus pray these words, it should encourage us to follow his example. Let all of us who are experienced any kind of difficulty in our life, realize that we can go to God with whatever concern we have, we can take it to Him and that our Heavenly Father will listen to us. Whether it's some sickness, sadness, difficulty in marriage, at work, a prodigal child or a prodigal parents, division in the church, loss of friends, difficulty in ministry, whatever it is, we can carry it to God. I wouldn't have been surprised if William Carey didn't pray after everything was destroyed, after he'd been there, I think it was about seven years. He had not had any converts. He had uh, translated all his material, Bible and everything into their language, and all of it was burned up. I mean, what do you do? I mean, seven years of your life. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he would not have prayed, Lord, move me to a more prosperous place. But he may have heard these words if he had prayed that prayer. No, you toil in the place that I have set before you. And there must be this watering and sowing. And it's mine to give the increase. Just wait in my timing. So let us all respond, not my will, but what you will. I often talk about 
the great prince of preachers in London, Charles Spurgeon. And you know, you think Charles Spurgeon, everything was wonderful all the time. Well, of course, that wasn't the case. The downgrade controversy may have been what actually carried him to his grave, so there was many difficulties. But he said on one occasion, I remember when I first came to London to preach the Word, I thought I could bear anything for Christ. That's how most of us young pastors, when I was young, we all thought that. But I found myself shamefully slandered. You believe that? Charles Spurgeon slandered. I found myself shamefully slandered. All manner of falsehood were uttered concerning me. And in agony I fell on my face before God and I cried unto Him. I felt as though that was the thing I couldn't bear. My character was very dear to me. I couldn't endure to have such false things said about me. Then this thought came to me. You must give up all to Christ. You must surrender everything to Him, character, reputation, and all that you have. And if it is the Lord's will, you shall be reckoned the vile of the vile, so long as you can still continue to serve and your character is really pure and you need not fear. If it is your master's will that you shall be trampled and spit upon all the wicked men in the world, you must simply bear it and say, not as I will, but as thou will. And I remember then how I rose up from my knees and sang to myself that verse, If on my face for thy dear name shame and reproach lies, all hell reproach and welcome shame if thou remember me. But how hard it was, you say, for you to suffer the loss of character and have evil things spoken against you falsely for Christ's name's sake. And what was the reason why it was so hard? Why? It was just because I hadn't fully learned how to pray this prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm afraid that I haven't completely learned it yet. It is very delightful thing to have your even your enemies speak well of us, to go through the world with such holiness of character that men who pour scorn upon all religion cannot find fault with us. But it is equally glorious thing for us to set in the pillory of shame, to be pelted by every bypasser, to be the song of the drunkard, to be the password of the swear when we don't deserve it, and to endure all this for Christ's sake. This is true heroism. This is the mean, meaning of the prayer of our text. I mean, none of us like people to talk bad about us, but especially when it's not true. You know, there's enough bad things about me that people could say, but what really aggravates me when they say things that are not true. You know, if they say things that I know that are true, then I can just shake on and move off. But when they say things that are not true, that's what irritates us. And that's what Spurgeon is saying here. But we have to pray that if that's God's will, then we must endure it. Secondly, why should we pray this prayer? 
Not out of spirit of fatalism, humming, say, Shirah, Shirah. Y'all remember that song? Some of you do. Whatever will be, will be. But because it is right in this manner. See, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it should be our desire that God have his way at all times in our life, for he does all things right. Therefore, if my will is contrary to his will, then whose will should change? Children, if your will is contrary to God's will, whose will should change? Right? Your will. Not God's will, because God's will is perfect. Is He not the potter? Am I not the clay? Is He not the creator? Am I not the created? Will He not do with me and in me and for me as He best sees fit to use me for His glory? Now what does that mean? Now when we think of being used for God's glory, what do we often think of? Oh, I'm going to be a great missionary. I'm going to be a great preacher. I'm going to be a great evangelist. Or I'm going to be great in my job. I'm going to do something wonderful and great to bring glory to God. Well, maybe that's not God's desire for you. It might be something much more difficult to deal with. Something that you never planned to do that God has for you to do, which is a very humbling situation. I mean, how often have we sung, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. We sing that, but do we mean that? Are we willing to yield to God? Are we really willing to let Him mold us and make Him after His will, not our will? As God's creatures, we should always submit to His will. The redeemed should bow before the great Redeemer. So it's right to pray this Prayer, not my will, but thy will be done. Whatever that means for us in our life. We don't know the future, but God knows the future. And God has certain plans for us in the future. I know it was not my mother's will, nor her plans, to take care of my father for eight years as he laid on a bed, helpless, unable to do anything. I mean, there's a lot of other things that she would have rather been doing. But it was God's will for her to be a nurse to her husband for eight years in that situation. That's not a situation that we would desire. None of us would desire that situation. But yet, we submit to a situation like that. Whatever God's providence might be for us, and you can share similar stories of those that you know and those that you love have gone through 
in their life submitting to God's will and they prayed this prayer. Thirdly, why should we pray this prayer? Because it is wise to pray this prayer. If we always had our way, it would be the worst thing in the world. But for God to have His way is the way of wisdom. Of course, we don't have the ability to prevent God's will, but if we had the ability to prevent God's will, it would be chaos. For we don't know the future, nor do we know how man will respond to certain events. But God knows the future, and God knows how every person will respond to whatever He brings into their life. He knows me much better than I know myself. He knows you much better than you know yourself. He sees as far as eternity in His plan for me and for you. And He sees the repercussions of every action that I could take. I can't even begin to comprehend that, but He knows it. He sees it. He's planned it. Years ago... Elizabeth Elliot and Corey Ten Boone were talking. Boy, what I'd love to have been there and hear that conversation. And they had such a happy time of Christian fellowship. The theme of God's providence came up. And, and Elizabeth, having of course lost her first husband, Jim, there in uh, the jungles of South America and Ecuador, and then she also lost her second husband to cancer. And Corey Ten Boone picked up a piece of embroidery uh, showing her the backside of it. And you know what the backside of something that has been stitched looks like. It's chaos. You can't make out anything in that. And then she repeated to Elizabeth these words. My life is but a weaving between, betwixt my God and me. I do not choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I in foolish pride forget to see the upper and I the underside. Then Corey Ten Boone took that embroidery and she turned it over. And there on the other side revealed a golden crown on a purple black background and it had these words yet not what I will but what you will and of course that's the way of wisdom R.C. Sproul said Jesus asked for another way to save us but he did not ask out of an obstinate disobedience or a refusal to submit to the Lord. He was willing to obey the Father no matter what it would take. And let us pray that God would grant us the very same willingness. How true. How true we need to pray that each day. God, give us the strength. Give us the desire, give us the willingness to obey you no matter what
comes our way, no matter how difficult it may be. It's also a matter of trust to pray this prayer. A matter of growing resilience of our Lord. I mean, imagine the Lord Jesus Christ being visible, being present, being here in this pulpit tonight. And He looks out at you and He says, Friend, your will and my will are not in agreement tonight. You want to go this way, but I'm telling you to go this way. Whose will is to prevail? Yours or mine? Suppose you were to say, Lord, I must have my will. Don't you think Jesus would look at you and He'd say, but didn't I give my will for you? And won't you give up your will for me? Didn't I surrender everything I had, even my life, for your sake? And are you going to say today, I've got to have this thing according to my will and contrary to your purpose for my life? I hope and pray that we would bow our head and say to Him, Lord, I'm sorry for defying You. Forgive me for my rebellion. Even if Your will is hard, I'm going to accept whatever it is. You can make the bitterest cup sweet let me see you again dying on the cross for me. Let me know again that you love me. Whatever you put in me, let me willingly accept because I know that your will is perfect. I will be perfectly content to be wherever you choose to put me. Sproul said, Jesus' submission to the will of His Father was no stoic resignation of faith. Rather, our Savior wrestled with the choice before Him. He begged for the cup to pass from Him. And He was so distressed emotionally that He sweat drops of blood. But He submitted to the Father's will. Likewise, it should be your desire and my desire to do God's will in all things. May the Holy Spirit convict us and enable us to do God's will, whatever that might be. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we think upon our Lord and Savior and what He went through there in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the love that He had for His people. We see His willingness to be obedient to Your will, even unto death. How we pray that this would be so in our life, Father. 
how we pray that when we know what your will is, that there would be no hesitation whatsoever, but that we would be obedient to clear admonitions in your word. And those times, Father, when we're unsure and we're wrestling with those things that we are not sure about, we pray that your word and your spirit would reveal to us what your word, what your will is. And we know that's often done even through your providence and that we would accept it and not argue against it, but be obedient so that we might bring honor and glory to your name. This we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.